Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending July 16. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast, you are going to hear uh, the wonderful Al Costa telling us all about the MIF program, which was launched this week and which we're hopefully going to be watching in cinemas around Melbourne. Veronica Sullivan also came in. She was filling in for a book review and talked about Small Joys of Real Life by Ali Richards. And we had a chat to Samasa Bawi, writer of Them, which is being performed at the Arts Centre Fairfax Studio. And we chat superstitions, what is bringing on bad luck in your family and in your life. Dr Jen brought us the weird science of human screams, which opened up a chat about our favourite fire alarms. Triple R. The 69th Melbourne International Film Festival kicks off in cinemas and online from August 5 with a record 40 world premieres, the hallmark of this year's lineup. And to run us through some of the program and highlights, we're joined by MIF's Artistic Director, Al Cossa. Al, welcome back to Breakfasters. Thank you. Good morning. How are you? Oh, we're excellent. MIF's back, baby. <laughs> I know. It's, it's been a while. Uh, it's kind of crept up on us too, but... The program is going live today. It's over 280 films. There's 10 XR experiences. There's 25 features from Khan. It's suddenly all happening again, which we are very thrilled about. Mm. Uh, what are the features from Khan? some of the highlights? Look, one of the ones I'm really excited about, and it just snuck into the program uh, at the last minute after our program look, but it was one of those that we just had to have and kind of shoehorned in and made it work, is uh, Annette which is the new film from Leos Carax. Um, we did a, a whole kind of retrospective dedicated to, to him in, in 2012, um, but his new film is, is just magnificent. It was opening night at Cannes. It's a musical. It's a musical unlike any you've seen before. Um, with uh, It was written, um, devised music from Sparks, so the Sparks brothers who, uh, of course, themselves are featured in the Edgar Wright film playing around Melbourne at the moment. Uh, it's with Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. Um, it's, I guess, a love story that turns dark and, and somewhat murderous um, with some very, very catchy hooky pop tunes all the way through. It is a delight for audiences. Um, that is one of the ones I'm most excited about. Uh, just to pluck another, the Harlem Cultural Festival of 1969, what's happened here? Yeah, so this is our Centerpiece Gala film for the year. Um, and it's an Australian premiere. It is Summer of Soul. Um, it is Questlove's directorial debut, opening night film at Sundance, winner of Grand Jury Prize Award, winner um, on the Audience Award side there as well. So this was a music festival. It was the other iconic music festival of 1969, but one never mythologized in, in the same way Woodstock was. Um, and that's because the footage from it was literally sitting in a basement for 50 years. Uh, untouched and undiscovered. Um, it's a glorious, uh, uplifting uh, celebration of music featuring Nina Simone, Stevie Wonder, Mahalia Jackson, Mavis Staples, Sly and the Family Stone. Um, and it really is, it's, it's more than an active sort of rediscovery. It really is a celebratory concert film, but it's also a film that's very resonant to, to these times, I think, um, in terms of describing a moment of political expression and cultural transformation um, and systems of power being challenged. It's, yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary film. Um, as we put it, we hope there will be the maximum amount of dancing in the aisles that COVID will allow at the time. <laughs> mm. um, it really is a film to see together and it's something joyful for our gala. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, the last opening night that we were able to attend was The Australian Dream uh, by Stan Grant. What's the opening night film this year? 
Yeah, so um, highly anticipated. What we have to open with um, and to welcome audiences back into cinema this year is Leah Purcell's The Drover's Wife, The Legend of Molly Johnson. Um, this launched at South by Southwest. It'll be Australian premiere with us. And um, I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners will be aware of the, yeah, quite amazing creative journey of this story. Um, you, you know, Leah Purcell, as a, as a visionary, um, took this firstly to life as a revisionist take on the Henry Lawson um, short story, but as an award-winning play, uh, and then turned it into an award-winning novel. And um, here it is as, uh, as a really striking, compelling film. Um, and Purcell wrote, directed, starred in, you know, true kind of force of nature here. Um, so we're absolutely thrilled to kick off Myth with this. It's an outback western. Um, again, it has something special to say and, and really pertinent to say and really compelling to say to the moment as well. Um, and as a, as a thriller, as a piece of, I guess, widescreen cinema, as westerns are, destined for that um, big screen theatrical sort of treatment. It's something really bold and I think wonderful to welcome people to back, uh, back to Myth with. I think Melbournians are desperate to sit in cinemas again and to eat good food in restaurants and you're mm. teaming up with Supernormal uh, for an event that will probably tick both these boxes for yeah, a lot definitely. of people. What, what, what's happening there? Yeah, so yes, we um we have some great uh, collaborations with Supernormal over the years, and um, this one is no different. There's a documentary that it will be built out of, uh, which is by Morgan Neville, who you know did Twenty Feet from Stardom and Best of Enemies and uh, a whole number of things. It's Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. Um, and, you know, he, he had shot thousands of hours of, of footage, um, you know, a lot never seen. And the film is a really emotional and beautiful tribute um, to this man and, you know, the very sort of evocative way that he would write about, you know, how you travel, how you make your mark in this world. And Supernormal are, are taking that as a point of inspiration um, to create a five-course banquet from in celebration of all things Bourdain. So I think that will be, yeah, really fun, really special. Um I think you dropped the term XR before. What What is that to a Luddite who might be listening or talking to you? Um, XR really is is a blanket term. It's an evolution in, in, in terms of what MIF's VR program is. Um, and it kind of uh, gets a bit more outside virtual reality uh, in terms of, I guess, digital-led projects, uh, potentially AR things or uh, mixed reality kind of format that, yeah, that go a bit more expansive beyond the term virtual reality. Um it's uh, in terms of the VR side of things, we brought that into the festival in 2016. Um, and it's something that became particularly complicated uh, within COVID, um, sharing of headsets, hygiene, etc. as you can imagine. Um, but we've partnered with a company called NVR. We've built a digital platform uh, where nine out of 10 of MIF's XR um, uh, films and works this year uh, can be seen. They can be seen anywhere actually in the world, the whole uh, program on the NVR platform is for free. Um, and there's some really quite extraordinary things on there. Uh, one I'd recommend is a work called Biolum, which is sort of a, a thriller set under the sea featuring uh, Charlotte Rampling. But yeah, in terms of creating a digital platform, and many of the works don't actually require a headset for you to enjoy them at home, it's something pretty revolutionary and something that I hope works within the times that we're dealing with as well. Yeah. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't inquire about Franco Cotto. <laughs> oh, um, I am utterly thrilled to have got this film at the world premiere. Um, Madeline de Martiniello's uh, Palazzo de Cozzo, the 
uh, iconic maestro of all things Baroque bedhead here in Melbourne. It's an utterly <laughs> local hero story. Um, anyone who has been endeared by Franco's uh, ads and personality over the year had probably been waiting for that uh, big screen moment to arrive. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, coming at you 30 feet tall on a cinema screen, just as it should be. Um, it's a it's a really lovely, beautiful portrait of yeah, an iconic uh, hometown hero, as I say, but also very much of the Italian community in Melbourne right through the 20th century. And what it has to say about our community is really thoughtful um, and insightful and, yeah, a beautiful portraiture. Al, have you had a moment, just because we've all been locked away and not allowed to do all these wonderful things that our city does so well, have you had a moment where you've just sat in a cinema by yourself and been kind of taken aback by the fact that you're able to, we're able to do this again? Yeah, I've... Gosh, I haven't had much in the way of time to sort of go to a, a cinema as a punter. I've I've seen a few things in terms of myth on the cinema screen, and I guess the first time that was, we would normally travel a lot, and we would normally fly 30 hours to see films in, in far-flung places because it can be the most sort of efficient way to, to do things um, and to get things done. Um, and there was a moment in February where um, our, our market uh, team worked with the Berlinale and they brought all of the Berlin um, films, uh, competition films, through to the, the Kino and we got to go and see that. Um, and that was sort of extraordinary because you kind of would normally expect to travel halfway around the world to see these things. And suddenly these films came three blocks from your offices, <laughs> sitting in the Kino, um, watching them. And it was just this, yeah, it was it was quite amazing. We were there with industry colleagues and distributors and people who we work a couple of K from, but also hadn't seen or been in a room with for a year. So that was the point to me in February where it was like, well, festivals exist. The world has flipped. They've come to us and things are starting all over again. And it sort of continued from there. Uh, I mean, the fact that we're back in the real world. Um, is quite mind-boggling um, at a time where the, the world is slipping quickly around us. Yeah. yeah. Is there a venue that you're looking forward to seeing filled up? Um, the drive-in, the Coburg drive-in is one. Oh, um, yes. We've tried to design Myth in a way this year. We're using all of our CBD venues. We're also going out to the suburbs across five venues on the weekends um, to reach out, meet audiences where they are. We're going to eight uh, country Victorian towns as well throughout our August dates too. So it's very expansive this time. But um, the drive-in is something that I think is a special and really interesting uh, and fun personality to it very much. Um, we kind of experimented with it at the end of last year. We did a couple of screenings there of One Night in Miami in nine days. Um, the vibe was brilliant. Audiences sort of loved it, brought their own setups. There was a there was a wedding proposal that night, all kinds of things. So, she said yeah. no, by the way, so I'm sad about that. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, Al, it's very exciting. Get around it. The program is fresh. It's launched today. Is yep, that... That's yep. right. We've got our program launch video. Um, I'll take you through the highlights of Myth for an hour. That'll be released um, this morning via Myth Channels. And then the whole uh, film program will be online from around about 2 o'clock this afternoon. All right. Myth.com.au is where to go. Check it out. We've been speaking with Myth's artistic director, Al Cossa. Thanks very much, Al. Thanks so much, guys. Melbourne's own Triple R. Here to chat the latest in literature this morning, we're joined by book reviewer and head of programming at the Wheeler Centre, Veronica Sullivan. Hello, Veronica. Hi, guys. How are you? We're tremendous, and thank you for being here. 
It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, what have you lugged in? So I've got a fabulous debut novel to talk about this morning. It's called Small Joys of Real Life and it's by Ali Richards. Um, it's out in a couple of weeks' time and it's a very, very Melbourne book, so a perfect one to talk about this morning. Mm. Uh, so we're talking novel, Ali Richards. What's it about? Yeah, so it's a debut novel. It's about a young woman in her 20s named Eva who's living in Melbourne, working sort of sporadically as an actor. Um, she meets a gorgeous guy at a house party and they have a one-night stand. Soon after that, he takes his own life and soon after that, she discovers that she's pregnant and she decides to keep the baby. So it's a real a premise that's got a lot of emotional states really immediately present. Um, and it's kind of, I think it's quite easy to summarise and kind of, you know, it's got a bit of a hook just in that concept. Mm. But I think it's a really impressive book. Um, just very, it's often quite surprising and, and really emotionally nuanced. And particularly as a first novel, it goes to a lot of different places um, in terms of its exploration of relationships and, yeah, just the emotional kind of stakes that are present for this character, Eva, um, and for her loved ones. She's a pretty prickly character. She's often quite selfish and a bit aimless, which, you know, is your 20s, I suppose. That's very <laughs> fair enough. Um, but she's in that sort of strange space between adolescence or young adulthood and actual adulthood where you're kind of waiting for someone else to tell you what you can and can't do and what you should be doing with your life. And all of that becomes far more complicated for someone who is unexpectedly about to become a single mother and kind of isn't sure what she's doing at all, but at least knows that she wants to do that. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's a fantastic book and it's got the, this beautifully drawn central character, but also some really beautifully drawn friendships um, with her with her two best friends, which I really like because although it's a book that begins with a sexual or romantic encounter, um the, the friendships are really at the core of it and between the three of them, between Eva and her two best friends, Annie and Sarah, they're kind of the full spectrum of 20-something millennial women, you know, that you can, within that range, you can have like a really stable young professional in a long-term relationship kind of, you know, looking at buying a house and then you can still have um, – Sarah, who's the other best friend, the party girl who's in denial about kind of the need to take anything seriously and constantly hungover or coming down. But I, they, although they are kind of, that sounds quite archetypal and they are in some ways, um, Ellie Rich is also really great at inverting and subverting their roles and positions unexpectedly. And, and the main thing for me is the bond these three women have. It's not simple, it's not perfect, but it's very strong and it's very recognisable and authentic, I think. When you say Melbourne sharehouses people in their mm. 20s, I think a, a lot of a lot of people would go Helen Garner uh, when you're talking about <laughs> Melbourne. Uh, are the comparisons fair or is it a really or is that just really simple and easy to, to draw that to draw that line? Look, I think it's pretty savvy marketing. Um, the publisher's been uh, sort of marketing the book as Sally Rooney meets Helen Garner, which kind of ticks all your boxes and like yeah. everyone's going to be interested <laughs> yeah. in that. And, but I think it's, I think it is a fair comparison. It's very, it's a very Melbourne book, which I love. Like at the start of the book, 
Eva meets the soon-to-be father of her baby at the tote and they're seeing oh. a Gareth Lydiard gig. It's, like, very specific, <laughs> that sticky, sweaty band room feeling. Um, and then there are other sort of scenes, you know, she goes to see indie plays at Red Stitch Theatre and it's very, very um, evocative of – it's over the course of one summer for the most part and it really drops you into that feeling of the summer, the hot summer months where the city just feels kind of baking and empty and everyone who – can has escaped to the beach <laughs> or to the coast and you kind of just like Melbourne is just this hot cauldron with everyone trying to just lie down and do as little as possible. Mm. Um, she's very good at <laughs> the creating that atmosphere and especially um, Eva lives in like a rundown terrace house with no air con. It's that very oppressive kind of feeling. So it's very Melbourne. It's very Melbourne summer. It's, it'll be a great book to read over summer, but I actually quite enjoyed reading it in the middle of the freezing winter because it was like, oh, I'm going away from this, you know, this horrible weather that we've been having recently and kind of being immersed in that sticky summer feeling. Um, but, very, yeah, so very Melbourne. Um, I think the Helen Garner comparisons are totally warranted. It's very, very reminiscent of Monkey Grip. Um, but also I know that, like, Jennifer Downs' novel Our Magic Hour, a lot of people really love, and I think this is a great one for people who enjoy that book as well. Uh, and... Is it ambitious to write a, a pivotal sex scene in a debut novel? How does how does that go? We we know the literary award for the the annual bad sex in fiction. How does this? <laughs> how does, oh, how yeah, does this absolutely. book grapple with it? When you know, with sex and bad sex in fiction is one of the most excruciating things you can possibly read. <laughs> um, but I think this is it's really really good. Actually, she's very good at kind of capturing. Um, you know, the emotional landscape of sexual encounters. It's not sort of blow-by-blow, blow, like, pornographic detail. Um, but there are some also some really great sex scenes after Eva is quite pregnant, so while she's going through her pregnancy and she's sort of dating some a, a guy casually. Um, and, you know, the descriptions of them having sex while she's getting more and more pregnant and what that involves are really, really... Um, interesting, I would say, and and just like quite unexpected. I haven't read much like that where it's you know someone who's pregnant having casual sex um, and kind of exploring what that looks like for both parties and and kind of what the stakes might be there. So yeah, not cringy at all, which is very admirable. I think she's very good at knowing you know how much detail to give of the kind of physicality, but also. What that what it means for the characters, which I admire, because yes, definitely, bad sex scenes can be can ruin a whole. Like I've read some amazing books that just have the terrible sex scenes, and it's really distracting. Is it giving too much away to ask the, how much time span the book covers? Yes, um, uh, it's about six months. So it's sort of, as I said, it's mostly over summer. It's sort of from September to April. Um, and it sort of, I won't spoil it, let's yeah. say, but it, it gives you to right to the kind of end of the pregnancy. Does it say who wins the premiership in the book? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's definitely Richmond. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We can win well, it in fiction, not if not in real life. <laughs> Uh, so it's not out yet. You've got an advanced copy. That's right. Yeah. So 28th of July, it's coming out. Okay. Um, 
but you could pre-order it now from your local independent bookstore. And I believe um, the book launch, I think it's at the Northcote Social Club. I think oh. that's another classic <laughs> sort of, um, you know, very, very relatable for this book to be at a band room and sort of getting that vibe happening. Excellent. So you can probably sign up for that through the publisher as and, well. Yeah, and the publisher is? Hachette, Australia. Excellent. It's The Small Joys of Real Life by Ali Richards. Uh, Veronica Sullivan, thanks so much for chatting this morning. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Uh, when I was, oh, not yet, well, younger, yes, but um, my parents used to host lots of dinner parties, like whenever family would come over from overseas or someone's birthday, we'd always have lots of people over and mum would cook a big feast. Uh, and then I remember this one time uh, at the end of the night, I just picked up a broom and I went to sweep uh, just to clean up a little bit. And my mum has screamed at me. She's like, Bobby, put the broom down. And I was like, oh, I thought there was a spider on it or something. And uh, like, I've, I've quickly dropped it. She's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm, I'm cleaning. She's like, you don't sweep at night. I said, I beg your pardon. She goes, you don't sweep at night. It's very bad luck. I was like, oh. I've never heard that. She's like, well, don't ever do that again, not in my house. And she was so angry. I was like, oh, I'm, I, I didn't know that that was a thing. She's like, in the islands, if you sweep at night, then that is very bad luck for your family. I was like, oh, okay, well, I won't do it again. <laughs> I had no idea that sweeping was, was a superstition, I guess, that, that she had. Like, we had other one. well, we had, my family believed in another one. My brother put uh, his brand new shoes on the table. <gasps> I lived with someone who, who had that superstition. I had never heard it before. We, what, get this right. So, oh, God, I felt sorry for my brother. He put his shoes on the table and, like, mum and dad have gone, get him off the table. And they got him off the table. And we got a phone call later that my nan had been in a car accident. Oh, and she had broken, like, out. her like her chest. She was, she actually, I'm not sure how old she was at the time, maybe in her 60s, um, but she was driving in the country and she had to call out of her car and walk like a couple of kilometres and she had uh, broken some bones within like her ribs, her chest, she had um, damage to her head um, and yeah, she went into this house and they got an ambulance for her and then it was just like, don't ever put shoes on the table. I'm like, oh my God, do you guys have any superstitions or, I mean, and I mean, be- the shoes on the table is, you shouldn't, some, you shouldn't do it anyway. I live with someone <laughs> yeah. who, I don't know why I did it. But who I put shoes on the table. Like they were new shoes. Maybe we were cleaning. No, mine weren't new shoes. They're gross, Sarah, really. But I think we were cleaning and I just picked them up and put them on the table and was vacuuming and Mm. she (sighs) lost it and I put the you know, took them off and was like, oh, I didn't I didn't heard that. And then from that moment on, everything unraveled. <laughs> like everything. The house unraveled. Yeah. We got infested with cockroaches. Uh our friendship unraveled. <laughs> it just became this disastrous it went on for I reckon it unraveled for two years. Wow. Things are good now. We're friends again. Uh, <laughs> however, we had to move out of that house. We lost our bond on the house because well, the, the real estate the agents were dodgy. Yeah. Uh, we moved into a new place. That place was a disaster. Everyone fought in it. It ended in her and I moving out from one another. Mm. And I I trace it all back to the shoes. Shoes on the table. Honestly. Uh, watching sport, Rafael, Rafael Nadal fidgets. And he's got some things that he needs to do before he serves. Yeah, yeah. And but now there's that clock that counts down, and so you. Oh, is it? Yeah, so you'll have point. You lose the point if you take too long to serve, and so watching him get through his superstitions. Yeah, 
is totally anxiety-inducing. Because, <laughs> like, is he going to, you know, is he finished fidgeting with his balls or whatever he's up to? <laughs> uh, tennis balls. Yes. And... Uh, and, and, you know, it's counting down every single point. Same with Steve Smith. Steve Smith's got oh, he's shit so, to do. It's so annoying does to watch. Does he? What does he do? Oh, he just moves every bit of equipment on his body before he actually faces up to bat. I don't know if it's a superstition, ah. traditional one, but it's, he, he looks like a number 10 or 11 batter, so people who are generally not batters, yeah. who come out and just are so nervous and don't know what to do with themselves. So you move everything as though you're preparing, but you're actually useless at batting, but somehow he pulls it off. Yeah. And huh. so when there's a spin bowler and their run-up isn't that far, so I'm like, is he going to quit his fidgeting in time for the ball to come? Like he's nervous. That's so stressful, yeah. isn't it? But that's kind of like, you know, the footy now too, when they're lining up for goal, there's also oh, the yeah. countdown clock. And I thought Matthew Lloyd would have been stuffed. Remember he used to go through this uh, whole process yeah, that yeah. went on for about a minute and a half before he kicked and was a great kick. Like yeah. it seemed to work for him. Yeah. But I do wonder if he would have made it in this day and age. He That's wouldn't have right. got through it all. What was he, what, did he have the socks to the pull so- up? He was socks up and down or pushed down and pulled up. The he grass throw. The grass and yeah. His jumper was always tucked in. I don't know if he re-tucked it maybe. Yeah. Oh, he did uh, feel like he was always tucking in his yeah. socks, wasn't he? There was lots of tucking. Someone just said that their, um, they have Italian heritage. Their mum used to say that shaking out the tablecloth would bring bad luck with wealth. I haven't heard that one before. But what do you oh, just keep wow. have a crummy tablecloth forever? How do you overcome these things? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. You, you don't. You just, yeah, don't have a tablecloth maybe. Yeah. You, um, Rafael Nadal, he was one of the athletes. So I've got an article on some different athletes and what they do. And he, um, so before a match, he always crosses the line with his right foot. He arrives with one See. tennis racket in his hand. He eats his energy gels in a very specific way. He always jumps during the coin toss. Um, and what was the other one? And he always lines up his water bottles in an orderly line, making sure that the labels point in the same direction. So he has multiple things that he has to continually, right. continually do. That stresses me out. It's OCD, him. isn't it? It's how exhausting. Yeah, like super exhausting. Um, On top of being good at tennis, you got to do all, yeah. do all these Crap. things. I find it weird though because. Like at that level of tennis, right, you are training so hard. You have all the best coaches in the world. You're eating all the right food. You have all the sports science to tell you that you're the best tennis player in the world, Mm. yet you still have to go through these things that make you think that's the reason you win, not not everything else that's around you. Not all the preparation and training that you've been doing your entire life. Your entire life. There was some clarification on the cloth. Shake it the next day. Oh, so like the sweeping. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I love these because I'm a putter-offer of chores (laughs) at night. Like Andrew, when we finish dinner, gets up straight away. Straight away. Straight away. Dishes done, wiping the table, sweeping, sweeping, sweeping. It throws my head in. Whereas I'm a just sit around, (laughs) pop the things. I don't want to sweep the floor. And I think that if I could push these things into the next day because it's It's bad luck otherwise. Yeah, claim it. This would be good for the relationship. Yeah, too bad. I'm the next day as well. Yeah. I, I'm like Andrew. I am like oh. uh, <laughs> Abby hasn't even finished. I'm like I'm grabbing her plate from underneath to clean around her. I yeah, I do like to clean up. And then away. you get shamed for not helping. Yeah, oh, it's like never. this is a post dinner <laughs> repose. Yeah, repose. It's repose time. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I agree. I just like to have a moment. It has to be a moment. <laughs> Yeah, no, fair yeah. enough. Give us a moment. Yeah. yeah, give us a moment. And I'll stand on the table later and sweep. Yeah. <laughs> Triple R.
Samar Sabawi is an award-winning Palestinian-Australian-Canadian scholar, commentator, human rights advocate, poet and playwright, whose new play Them is on stage at Fairfax Studio at the Arts Centre this July 28-31 to to tell us about it. The writer joins us now. Samar, welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning. Uh, I'm seeing such striking images of Them, the poster everywhere. Uh, What is it? What's it about? Uh, them is a story about a, um, a group of friends. Uh, at the center of it is this young couple with, with a child who are um, caught in a war zone and they have to make a decision whether they should stay um, and wait for things to calm down or leave. And leaving means taking additional risks, um, going by boat through sea or um, trusting human smugglers. And it's agonizing um, agonizing decisions for them to make and and the story is is about what leads people to make these decisions and really what is the price that people are willing to pay to protect their loved ones um and and so it it grapples with some very um uncomfortable questions but uh because it's a slice of life um it also has humor and music and all the things that punctuate our lives on a daily basis. Mm. It's such an extraordinary premise. Did you become obsessed with this play when it first struck you? Yeah, look, if if you hear about any work I've done, it's the work that I was obsessed with. The rest is in um, the trash can, and so nobody <laughs> hears about it. If I follow if I follow through with it, it means that it is it became uh, an obsession, and I felt, you know, it's work that I feel very important, um, very strongly about getting out there because it's a conversation we need to be having, um, and um, and it's uh, it's truths that we need to be facing. When did uh, the issues and themes from this play really hit home for you that caused you to start writing? Yeah, so I was, um, I am born to refugees. Um, I was born in Gaza in Palestine. And so my whole life, uh, I was surrounded by the, these questions of, do we stay? Do we go? Where is a better place for our children? Where is a better place for, for us to belong to? Um, we came here in the early 1980s, um, and that question did not leave us. It, we did not leave it back home, only because the conversation here is louder than ever about the rights of refugees and asylum seekers. Um, and so in 2013, uh, 2015, I was on a tour in Finland on a speaking tour, and that was at the time when the, the crisis, uh, the Syrian refugee crisis erupted. Um, two million Syrians were, Syrians were made refugees at that time. And, you know, we had these images of uh, people walking through forests in Europe, uh, trying to find a place um, to, to to find safety. And where I was in Finland, it happened to be the, the, the Finnish National Day. And I was advised by my handlers uh, not to go into the street that day because I was too brown uh, for the angry um, people who were out there protesting what they called the flood of refugees. And it wasn't rhetoric that I wasn't used to. Um, and that's what struck me the most. It's like I could be at the end of the world and the us and them discourse is going to be prevalent um, because it is a human discourse and it's an inhumane one. And so I started writing in my hotel room and that was uh, the day that I wrote the first draft for this play. Did you uh, source testimonies from anywhere in particular? Where, where did you go to for inspiration for the characters and what they grapple with? 
Well, my the 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 main um, premise of the story was inspired by my cousin. Um, she told me during the 2014 bombings in Gaza that she um, and her family hid under a kitchen sink, uh, and it was you know one of these houses that had these really big um, kitchen cabinets and sinks, and um, and they had been they, they had left their home to to find refuge in another neighborhood. And they were staying at a friend's house, and her thought being hiding in the in the sink uh, with her children, as the the um, as the bomb fell on that building was. Um, I hope I don't they don't find me here like this because then they won't know who I am. It's better for me to have stayed at home so that I could be recognized um, when I die. And and so she inspired a lot of. And her husband and her constantly made sexual innuendos and jokes. And it really, I think the spirit of the play was was inspired by my conversation with, with this couple and their children and their constant agonizing question of whether to stay or leave. That and the fact that I um, I have family uh, as well in Yarmouk refugee camp in, uh, in Syria. Uh, and so um, that, you know... You, <laughs> And I have to admit it that that we as people we only become super interested in a place if we know someone, uh, and that knowing of someone and that agonizing and living through the the insecurities and the uncertainties of war with people you love who are close to you it 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 really it messes with you in so many ways but it also uh, for a writer it just provides um, that uh, richness of experiences that uh, that need to be written about and this play's been staged before so does that mean that this is a total breeze for you you're just loving the return in the beautiful Fairfax studio uh, can I can I <laughs> look I admit I did jump uh, up and down a lot when when this came through <laughs> I, I was look I was 13 the first time I walked along St Kilda Road and looked at Hammoth Theatre and um, you know the daughter of refugees not yet a citizen of any country my father was more than 40 years old before he became a citizen of a country uh, when we came here but at that point, you know, I was looking at these windows and thinking, you know, and, and I loved writing from when I was very little. I, I wrote um, what I thought was incredible stuff, which really wasn't. It was child stuff. I'm sure it was great. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I remember looking at these windows and think, saying, will I ever belong? And to me, to have this place showing at um, the art center um, is, is to feel included, finally feel um, that I'm, my voice is being included um, at uh, a mainstream stage. Uh, and so it is a very special time for me. I'm getting all teary-eyed thinking about it. And it's a time that I, I hope and pray that many, um, many people who come to this country seeking refuge uh, will have a moment in which they think, ah, oh, I'm included. Hmm. My voice is heard. And I, I think um, this play is for them. This play is for us. Um, and, uh, and, and so this is very special for me. It's, it's not a, it's never a breeze, although I'm not doing all the, the work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Begriana, God bless her. Our amazing director is, is, uh, in the rehearsal room every day with our extremely talented cast. Um, and so they're, they're doing all the hard work. The producers are doing the hard work. Um, the, you know, the actors, the, the crew, I am just enjoying right yeah. now. I am taking license to enjoy. Do you, are you allowed at the rehearsal or are you too intimidating? 
Oh, I, I'm allowed, yes. Look, I have one of those relationships uh, that uh, all playwrights would dream of having with their directors. Um, and so we're, um, yeah, I'm not just am I allowed, I'm welcomed. In the <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I got to tell you, you know, being there every day, is, there are other things to do in life. So I'm trying to, to get other things done as well. And what about La Mama? Was, did that have an important role in the play's development? Oh my God, look, La Mama, I owe La Mama so much. Uh, and I am not the only um, playwright or uh, artist uh, from marginalized groups that, uh, that feels that way. I think La Mama has taken a real, um, I mean, they live up, they live up to, to, to the, the values they espouse and they talk about. It, is, um, it gave me a platform to, to uh, put on my first play, Tales of a City by the Sea, my first play in Australia. Uh, which other theaters would have been petrified of touching because it's Palestine. Um, and there's always a cost attached to dealing with Palestine, even if it's just a Palestinian love story. But La Mama was, was uh, true to their commitment to new writers and um, took a chance on this writer who they've never seen or heard about before. And, um, and so staging tales there was like giving me a home um, and, and then... Uh, doing them with them was uh, an incredible experience and their support continues. They're also uh, co-producers of the show this time around. And so they're, they're my family um, and I owe them, I owe them so much. Oh, brilliant. Well, uh, the play is them. It's on July 28 to 31. You've probably seen the posters around town with an incredible image by Justin Coe. Uh, and uh, it's um, directed by, did you say, uh, Begriana Popov? Yep. Brilliant. And uh, the playwright is Samar Sabawi. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. Um, good luck Thank with you. it. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Triple R. It's over an especially weird science this Wednesday with Dr. Jan. Morning, Dr. Jan. Good morning, Daniel. You're not screaming for me. I'm disappointed. <laughs> no, that's you, actually Bobby. Well, Bobby wanted to set up a scream, so we're just gonna hang our wait. All right. I'm you, ready. I'm ready. Did you pick that up? Oh, my God. Could you hear that, That Jen? was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah was... that was good. Well, Bobby, you told me on Twitter that you, you said you scream more often than most people. I do. So, I do. so I need to know. I need to – this is important science, Bobby. Okay. So buckle in, get serious. All right. Tell me situations in which you scream. What, emo- what emotions are associated with your screams? So um, if I get scared, like – which I actually enjoy, but I will let out a short, <laughs> sharp scream. And then yep. and then I just get so giddy, like the adrenaline just gets me so excited. Most people probably crumble. I don't know. You tell me. But but that's <laughs> I, I do that. And then if I hear some really good news, I will do a scream. I'll, yeah. yeah. Not in a public – well, no, I've done it in a public place when a friend told me that they were pregnant. I screamed in a cafe. So, yeah, they're, they're the reasons I scream. Okay, so, so good news, fear – are there any other emotions? You said excitement. Yeah. Any, anyone ever screamed in anger or pain or despair? Oh, or... I, sc- I screamed oh, in anger. I... I think that if Andrew was listening, he'd probably say that that was my default scream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And and can you do one for us? Can we can we you know pretend you're really angry, Sarah? I want to hear it. Pretend. I'm always angry. No, <laughs> um, okay, go. go it's go, more go. of a frustrated, and it's a deeper scream than Bobby is. So I'd say this is my frustrated scream, frustrated slash angry scream. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> was, that, was that too much? I'm sorry. I feel like you've got a deep insight into my. My psyche. That, I'm sorry. I love that face. That's no, the whole that thing. Was, that was awesome. I'm just disappointed that all the listeners couldn't see your face then. <laughs> what, what did it do? I've never, I've never seen it. Um, it was just. Oh, now the, the anguish. The anguish was real. Oh. Yes, it was. There you go. But but you guys have demonstrated exactly what I was hoping that you would demonstrate. <laughs> I mean, we tend to think when we think screaming, we tend to think negative emotions, right? So we think fear or pain or frustration or anger. And, you know, a scream is a very particular kind of sound. And there was one study that looked at um, a whole lot of different sounds and found that the only other sounds that make our brains respond the same way as a scream does is a car alarm or a police or an ambulance siren. That's the only, (laughs) those are the only other sounds that can activate the fear center in our brains in the same way as a scream does. So that's wow. that's pretty interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah. God, it's satisfying sometimes to make someone scream. <laughs> to, to, in to, fear. Oh. Not not in a in a prank way. Oh, like jumping out in a scare. Yeah. My favorite one. Like I stood behind um Jesse yesterday who was pushing Gabriel on a swing and then Gabriel, she didn't know I was there and then Gabriel smiled at me so she was like, what's he smiling at? (laughs) (laughs) That whole, what you've just described is borderline (laughs) disturbing. Yeah, so we're seeing a whole new side of you this morning too. <laughs> I thought you only did that when you wanted someone to stop having the hiccups. No, there was oh yes, such pleasure. Mm. So okay, so brain, so so screams activate different parts of our brains, right? And generally, we think of a part of the brain called the auditory cortex, which is involved in sound. But the thing about screams is that they also activate the amygdala, which is a part of the brain we've talked about lots of times. That's kind of the emotional center, and that's involved with processing fear. So screams, unlike any other sound, can get our brains active when it comes to thinking, you know, being frightened. And and think about, you know, in nature. Animals scream when they're alerting other animals around them that there's a predator or there's a threat or there's an attack. You know, it's a scream is usually about attracting attention and saying, there's something bad here, we're going to have to take action. But think back to what Bobby said at the start. The really interesting thing about screams in humans is that we also scream in joy. We scream in excitement, we scream in pleasure. There's a whole lot of good reasons why we scream as well. You know, think about kids at a swimming pool or at a park. You hear heaps of screaming, lots of excitement, and it's not just kids. Think back to Beatlemania. Okay, so it's the Ed Sullivan show. It's 1964. Ed Sullivan's trying to introduce the Beatles, and you can't even hear what he's saying because all the girls in the audience are screaming so loudly at just seeing the Beatles that you can't hear anything. And I hadn't realised that was one of the reasons why the Beatles stopped playing live. Did you know that? Because apparently they just couldn't hear themselves playing over the constant screaming fans. I get that at comedy gigs. It's just distracting. (laughs) 
read one description saying it was like an you know it was like a jet plane coming straight at you this wall of sound that was actually quite painful to listen to and people hate being screamed at in concerts bobby tell us what's it like oh i mean i've had to walk off stage it is just it's i mean i jumped off the stage and into the crowd it was it was great But so, so why do people scream? You know, like I, I, you know, having never been to a Justin Bieber concert, but I hear it's not just the Beatles. You know, is it is it women screaming trying to get the you know Biebs attention? Is it about you know hierarchy? Because that's what it is in primates. You know, if you hear primates having fighting, you know, screaming matches, it's often about dominance and hierarchy. And, you know, I'm in charge here. So why why do girls scream at concerts? It seems like such a. Res- uh, 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 uh a response to an emotional state of, yeah. of, of kind of pure excitement and, and um, catharsis. Yeah, 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 like being able to express something that you can't express in any other way. Mm. Yep. So it's it's like there's just so much emotion and joy and excitement in you that you have to let it out and a scream is a really satisfying way to do that maybe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so the research that I'm trying to get to that I want to tell you about is this new research that said, okay, well, we know that screams evolved, at least in animals, to be about signalling threat and fear and, you know, needing to kind of do the whole fight or flight thing. In humans, we know that screams are also about excitement and joy and anticipation and all that sort of stuff. Let's look at what human brains do when they hear different kinds of screams. And that's never really been done before. We've always focused on these screams that are called alarm screams, so the bad ones. No one's ever really looked at what our brains do in response to these non-alarm screams, the happy, the excited ones. And so these researchers did four different experiments to look at what actually goes on inside our brains. So we've talked before about functional MRI work, which is where you can basically see which parts of the brain are lighting up in response to something. And we would assume that our brains had evolved to respond much more to danger screams, right, because they're the ones where someone needs help, we're going to need to help them. But actually, these studies showed really clearly that our brains respond much more to happy, excited screams than to frightened screams, which is the opposite of what we would have predicted. And we don't really know why. So any thoughts why we're more tuned to happy screams than to frightened or sad screams? Because they're rarer? I mean, that's obviously not the right answer, but it's kind of like well a, there a, is there is no right answer daniel so because the so, research so, isn't in yet but you're like the car alarm i'm you know i'll walk past a car alarm now yeah yeah i guess like if you're hearing terrifying screams you probably run away from it but if you're hearing screams yeah, of joy you kind of go like what's happening G- there give me some. i'm coming towards that <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's kind of what the research has suggested that maybe just in our modern human world screams of joy just play a much bigger role than screams of fear because we hear screams of joy more often and maybe it signals something more important to us. I mean, it's it's pretty weird. You would think that our deep evolutionary roots of, of wanting to be warned of an attack or a threat would mean that we'd be much more tuned into bad screams. I did find some other research that said generally we're really good at picking different types of screams, what sort of emotion has led to different screams, but this one study actually found that we're not very good at picking the difference between screams of excitement and Street screams of fear, and you know, think of the roller coaster. You're screaming. Is it because you're frightened or because you're exhilarated? It's kind oh, of both, right? Yeah, totally. And there has been so, few nights when I've heard screams on the street outside my house and thought, "Is that a scream I need to respond to?" 
Or is yeah. that just a drunken scream of yeah. excitement? Like, I have no idea sometimes. Yeah, and one theory is that the reason kids scream so much when they're having fun and have and playing is because as a parent, you need to hear your kids screaming all the time so that if your kid ever screams in absolute terror, you'll recognise it as your kid and you'll run to them and go and help them. But if you've never heard them scream before, because a scream's such a weird sound, mm. maybe you wouldn't even recognise it was your kid. So your kid is training you. Every time they scream and shriek in excitement and playing, they're training you to know what they sound like when they're screaming. And then if they really scream, whether it's happiness or whether it's fear, maybe you'll just, you know, you've evolved to, to immediately go and see what's going on regardless, just in case it is out of fear, which is an interesting theory, I reckon. And you're right, Sarah, about hearing, you know, because I live near a precinct where you, sometimes you hear screams of joy or whatever, but you don't know. Yeah. And then you don't want to wind up on the news. Like, why didn't you do anything? Yeah, you, you were like, the I guy that, having good time. Yeah, the guy that didn't walk outside to help, <laughs> help the screaming person. No, Bobby like, wasn't thought... there to send out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so maybe that's the moral of the story. Any scream is a scream worth following up on. Just do yes. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, right. so, so keep screaming, guys. Who knows why we scream exactly, but, uh, yeah, just keep screaming, I say. Um, Bobby, do you want to send Dr. Jen off? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Too Thanks, much. Bobby. That was awesome. <laughs> Thanks, and Dr. Sarah, Jen. I feel like I've seen a whole new side. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I should have revealed Thank that. <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Dr. Jen was talking about screams and, and she also mentioned uh, fire alarms and how that kind of alerts people. That's something that everyone's in tune to. Um, I live in a in an apartment complex and when uh, they have drills, fire drills, like an alarm will go off. But this, uh, I've lived in a few different apartments and this one has uh, speakers, I guess, which is safe, inside the apartment, not just in the hallways. No. And the first time I heard someone speaking over the top, like they're saying, oh, good afternoon, everyone, just letting you know. I'm like, where the hell is that coming from? And it was, yeah, it was inside the house, just inside the door. I, uh, and then they just had a fire alarm. Um, we, we evacuated once and we'd just, like, we'd ordered Uber Eats and we were starving. And then we got evacuated and our Uber arrived. So oh. we were eating dumplings on the steps with 100 other people just <laughs> who had to leave their dinner inside. <laughs> I'm so creeped out. I'm so creeped out by the idea that someone can speak to you in your apartment. Yeah. Like, like Big Brother. Same thing's <laughs> yeah. happened to me. Where, where, do you reckon they're at the fire department or are they at body corporate? Where is this microphone? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I reckon they are like a building manager. So they can come into the building and they can, I don't think body corporate would come yeah. out to the buildings or anything. So I, I want access to this microphone. Right. I want to know where it is. Yeah. Maybe there's just a basement with a man that lives, or a lady, that, or the lady. So sorry. Yeah. Lady in the basement. Oh, we all know the nursery the rhyme. That's <laughs> the sequel to the Freddy old woman in the shoe. <laughs> Lady in the basement. Um, oh, my God. Anyway, maybe there's just a little basement somewhere and someone sits in it just waiting for their moment to communicate yeah. with everyone in the apartment block. Yeah, I find it... Uh, in, un, the inhumanity. There's something about having your home space yep. invaded by some 
bloke in my yeah. instance. It was, um, I mean, I'm used to it. We've probably had about, we've been there about a year now, I think, um, and it's happened three or four times. So now it's like, okay, mm. there's a man talking you to know, us. This now. fire alarm, I, not to, there's been a lot of baby chat today, but I um, uh, just got Gabriel to sleep. Oh, testing. That, this yeah. is a test. No. That would, yeah, that would be very annoying. A test. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's only – oh, no. You know, it, um, out of the three or four times that we've had it, only once was it an actual fire alarm and we had the fire brigade come and it was because of – Burnt toast. Someone just burnt toast. Uh, smoke alarm went off, and again the fire brigade came. You know, I was working um, in Brisbane a couple of years ago when we could move around the country, not a problem. Um, and oh, the, <laughs> uh, the Australian women uh, were playing. Uh, the Australian women's cricket team were playing England, I believe, and. Australia were batting and one of the girls that wasn't batting was just inside the change rooms and she burnt toast and the fire alarm went off. I was the announcer for the game um, and we had to, because the fire alarm was going off, we had to stop play and then because there was so much smoke we had to call a fire, uh, the fire department. So the game had to stop and everyone in that um, stadium above the change rooms had to evacuate. So the game got stopped for I think it was about 25 minutes and this player was so embarrassed (laughs) just from toast but it's it it happened again a year later um in Melbourne at City Power Centre in St Kilda where Melbourne Renegades were playing Brisbane Heat I think it was Uh, and one of the girls who was in the batting team it's it's like you've got to get out of the kitchen girls do you know know what that I I think that maybe they just need to be catered for I feel like (gasps) yeah the men's team isn't I don't think Shane yeah. Warne was in there making his own <laughs> toast for his baked beans. His baked beans. Yeah, all, I mean, they get all their meals catered. It's just if they're hungry in between. Oh, okay. there's, a, there's a kitchen there that they can eat constantly throughout the day. Right. Um, but it's just I think they need to ban the toaster because, yeah. once again, th- that game got stopped for about 20 minutes. What about a self-correcting toaster? What about a toaster that pops when it senses charcoal? What? How does Wouldn't that, that not exist something? already? Exactly. Like, like we have see-through toasters. <laughs> That you can look at to see if it's burning, which just seems ridiculous. But we don't have a toaster that can sense that things are getting a see through toasters. Yeah, see through toasters. Doesn't fog when it gets hot? No, that's fantastic. I think it's a novelty. I don't know that it's very effective. Yeah. Uh, but perhaps the Australian women's cricket team. Yeah. (laughs) But if you're in a twenty, thirty, or even less apartment building, you like if you know when you leave the oven on and then you slap a pop out for ten minutes. Right. The risk of like, well, I'm not just burning down my house. I'm burning down everybody's house. And you can, is, and is that still a good? Pop you out. continue to pop out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. Triple R.